Why is freedom the highest value? Are we really born free? Or is freedom instead a great task and a mission for both society and the individual to achieve? You are listening to the series Thinking in Dark Times by Ukraine World, a website in English about Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I'm a Ukrainian philosopher and chief editor of Ukraine World. My guest today is Timothy Snyder, a famous American historian, professor at Yale University. This episode is a recording of Timothy Snyder's conversation with the Ukrainian cultural and intellectual community organized by Pan-Ukraine and Ukraine World on September 6, 2023. Snyder regularly travels to Ukraine. We had this conversation during his visit to Ukraine in early September. He traveled to the southern regions affected by this war and also stayed in Kyiv to finalize his new book about freedom. We dedicate this conversation to the memory of Ihor Kozlovsky, a prominent Ukrainian intellectual, religious scholar and activist who passed away on September 6th. Thinking in Dark Times is a podcast series by Ukraine World. This series seeks to make Ukraine and the current war a focal point of our common reflection about the world's present, past and future. We try to see the light through and despite the current darkness. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the largest Ukrainian media NGOs. You can support our work at patreon.com slash ukraineworld. You can also support our volunteer trips to the frontline areas at paypal, ukraine.resisting.gmail.com. You can find these links in the description of this episode. a high privilege for us and, and, and big honor and big joy to welcome Tim Snyder in the space of Pen Ukraine. Please give Tim a huge round of applause. So I would like to start our conversation with the question of freedom and I know you're writing your new book. Uh, I had a little possibility to look into it a little bit And uh, you, you are reflecting about freedom for, for quite a long time. You wrote uh, uh, already a book about this, A Road to Unfreedom. But now this is yet another book. And I remember we, we met last year in Kiev and we discussed it a little bit. And uh, you said to me, and this is also present in this book, that freedom is a value, is the highest value, is maybe a meta value, is a value above other values. And I try to challenge you on that uh, by saying that uh, when freedom is unsupported by other values, like solidarity or fraternity or brotherhood or sisterhood, uh, security, then it can also lead to bad things. And uh, maybe currently in some societies, maybe in Western societies as well, sometimes in Ukrainian societies, we see how freedom, when it, it goes into extreme, when freedom means I can do whatever I want, um, or freedom means that we build a society of neoliberalism where everybody got his or her freedom, but it's not compensated by solidarity or distribution of goods or something else, then it's also not, not very good. So why do you think freedom has certain priority over other values? 
Well, first of all, thank you, thank you all for being here. It's a, it's a great pleasure to be in, in Kiev with you and to have this chance to, to speak about this book. Um, as as Volodya says, this is a book that I'm, that I'm writing, and my, my method of writing has been to, um, to, to carry it with me everywhere. And because um, with, with the philosophy, I, it's nice of Volodya to say that I'm becoming a philosopher, but one of the things that I've understood about, maybe not about philosophy, but about philosophers, is that in general they need to talk to other people <laughs> more than they maybe do usually, and and so I've I've been I've tried to be dialogic about about this book and as Volodya says we actually spent a good deal of time talking about the same manuscript a year ago, so turning to the question the. I'm starting from the premise that when people use the word freedom in English, they don't really mean anything by it. So it's, we're in a slightly tricky place because we're speaking English now and you know Ukrainian has svoboda and volia, and if we were talking about svoboda and volia, we would already be having a different conversation. But my premise is that in the English language, freedom is an essentially empty word, that it's used, it's used a great deal, it has a good deal of emotional and political significance, but is essentially undefined. And so where I'm starting is with the definition of freedom, which is a partial answer to this question. So um, I believe there's a correct answer to the question, what is freedom? and that the correct answer is not doing whatever you want to do or following your impulses. I believe that f freedom, um, f freedom is a meta-value because there are real values in the world. And here I'm not very far from certain tendencies in Ukrainian dissident thought, for example, in the 1970s or 1980s. I'm a moral realist. I think there are real values in the world. I think that honesty, loyalty, generosity are real, maybe not the same way as a rock is real, but no less real than a rock. So I take it that these things are, and we can, we can discuss this, but I'm, I, I'm telling you my priors. So m one of my priors is that, is that ethical values or virtues, to use the better word, are, are real things, and that the reason why, so, that, so therefore, freedom is not a value like other values. Freedom is a value because it's the thing that allows us to make decisions among the other values. So if, if loyalty is good and honesty is good, can we agree that? So then loyalty and honesty are good, but they don't always go together, right? So for example, as you get older, when people say, you look great, it takes on a different significance. <laughs> it's shifting from honesty to loyalty. <laughs> but, but it's not both, <laughs> right? And so in a friendship, sometimes you're loyal and sometimes you're honest but you're thinking about 
if you're free, you're thinking about which one and in which combination, right? So it's good to be merciful, but it's also good to be consistent. But if you're consistent, you're not being merciful. And if you're merciful, you're not being consistent and so on and so forth. And so, so I am like following my teacher, Lesha Kolokovsky, I'm a moral pluralist, not a nihilist or a relativist, but a pluralist in the sense that I think all these things are real, but it, you, they don't automatically go together. And so then freedom is that state or capacity or ability in which we're able to try to make them go together or try to make the right choices or make a certain set of choices, which as we make them over time, make us the people that we, that we are. So, in other words, my notion of freedom is, is not negative. It's not about the absence of barriers. My notion of freedom is positive. It's about the presence of values, the quest for values, the ability to combine values. But it's positive then in a second sense. So if freedom is, if, you're, if you believe in negative freedom, you know, Volodya's question set up a kind of straw man about negative freedom. You know, isn't freedom just doing what you want? Um, if you believe in negative freedom, then you can say, I'm free so long as there's no barrier. There's no government, there's no barrier, there's nothing in my way, I'm free. And that's very simple and very elegant, but it's, I think, indefensible in a lot of ways, including politically, as, as you suggest. But and one of the ways, one of the ways that negative freedom is both elegant and indefensible, is that it allows you not to ask any questions about what it means to be human. If freedom is just the absence of barriers, and not the fulfillment of your your potential, then you don't have to ask what a person is, right? But the moment that freedom is positive in terms of values, then it be also becomes positive, I believe, in terms of institutions. Because if freedom, it's no, now I'm gonna make a move. If freedom is about the ability to combine values, these are not things which we, which we automatically are able to do. These are things that we learn to do. These are things that babies learn to do. Small children learn to do. And they learn to do them better or worse in different kinds of circumstances. So, I mean, just to take the very radical example, if you just leave a baby alone, it's a horrible thought, right? But if you just leave a baby alone, if you follow the logic of negative freedom, you put no barriers in front of that baby. You just let that baby do it at once. That baby is not, it's, it's not going to survive, but it's not gonna become free in any meaningful sense. So if we start from that radical example and we take less radical examples, we can see that to, to become a kind of creature who can be free, we need help, right? We need structural help, we need the help of other people. And if that's true, that means that in order for, for us to become free, we need various kinds of structures, which I'll stop the answer now, but in the book, this is the, the body of the book is about these structures, which I, which I call the forms of freedom. And these forms in the, have, have names which are very similar to some of the values which Volodya just named. The, the, the forms of freedom in the book are um, sovereignty, unpredictability, mobility, factuality, and, and, and solidarity. So 
I'm I'm agreeing in a way with the like I'm agreeing with the critique, but I treat it as a critique of the of the kind of freedom which I'm trying to treat as not really freedom at all. I think you're now going into this line of thought, which is maybe I'm wrong, but correct me if I'm wrong, which goes back to Eric Fromm, which goes back to Isaiah Berlin, and with there actually juxtaposition between negative freedom and positive freedom. And remembering uh, Eric Fromm, uh, who is saying that it's not enough to be free from, it's, it's, a, it's a very important to be free, freedom to something, freedom in order to do something, right? And I think this is a, a, a very critical, very important point for Ukraine, because Ukraine has a long tradition of kind of anti-tyrannical culture, anti-tyrannical politics. Uh, I would define Ukrainian political culture as essentially anti-tyrannical and republican against the imperial political culture. But that poses for us a, a question because sometimes it seems that we are very great at freedom from, but we are not very great at freedom too. But at the same time, if you are going, and, and this leads me to a question that Isaiah Berlin asked, that if you're going too much with this idea of freedom too, positive freedom, then you end up in thinking that, well, freedom is actually a necessity. Freedom is something that I really feel inside myself. Uh, and uh, when I really feel this inside myself, I choose values that that are, you know, represent my essence, basically. And then you, you risking end up in a, in a thought that freedom means necessity, right? And I remember our Soviet times when we learned this phrase and our parents learned this phrase, and it's, it's, it's like, it's so much deep in the minds of people when uh, they quote a distorted quote of Engels, which means freedom is necessity. Uh, freedom is a weird necessity. And, and I think this is, this is horrible, because if people start thinking in that way, that is also kind of a, it's, it's an Orwelli, Orwellian thought, you know, when you're, you're actually saying that, not you, but Engels and, and Lenin and others, they're saying that peace and, uh, is war, good is evil, um, freedom is necessity. Etc. Etc. So why I'm saying that I, I I do think that this negative freedom is is very important. So without this negative freedom, without this freedom from, we actually don't get freedom too. What do you think? Uh, the the justification for freedom from is freedom too, in 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 my in my view. So the these like these w these walls here are not bad because these walls are holding up a roof and creating a structure which allows us to have a conversation. So these walls in this setting are enabling us to do something. You could even say these walls are liberating us to do something. If these walls weren't here, the ceiling would fall down and it would be a very different discussion which, you know, given rocket attacks on Kiev is not an entirely theoretical point. Um, the, uh, but if the doors were locked and we were all trapped inside, we would suddenly think about the walls in a different way. So the walls themselves are not good or bad. The walls, it's, it's the intention behind the wall and, and the situation. 
And the reason why I'm saying that is that the, the, the freedom, I'm trying to make the point that freedom from these walls isn't enough, right? Like it's important for this conversation that that door is open and that anyone who really doesn't like our conversation can leave, right? Freedom. I will take it on my on my thing. So <laughs> it's it's only about me. <laughs> um, but freedom from us, right? So the freedom to leave this building is important. But the but that that's only that only matters because there's a person who has purposes, right? So there's a person who has purposes in this room, and the purposes led that person to come here, right? And if we lock them in, that would be bad. Uh, but only because they're a person with purposes, right? So the freedom, it doesn't, a wall like on, a, on, a, on an earth without people, a, a wall, a prison wouldn't be a bad thing, right? On, on, earth, on an earth without people, a dungeon wouldn't be a bad thing. It's, 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 the, it's the people that mean that we need to have freedom from. And so that, for me, what that means is that logically, freedom from is an element of freedom too. So one of the things which allows us to become who we are is the absence of torture and oppression and so on. But it's necessary but not sufficient. So to take a more serious example still, uh, when, um, when one of my colleagues book, A History of the Concentration Camps, he writes, he writes an anecdote of an American nurse who arrives or maybe it, was a, it may have been a British nurse at Bergen-Belsen, I forget. But it was, there was a nurse arrives at a concentration camp and it's been liberated, right? That's the word we use, liberated. The concentration camp has been liberated. And she arrives and she looks around at the people in the camp and she says, she writes in her diary, liberation is not the word, right? And why is liberation not the word? Because these people are still dying. They're, they're physically dying in front of her. And of course, they're still traumatized. And as a nurse, she's looking at them in terms of their bodies and not just the abstract state. So the doors have been opened, like in principle, there are no more barriers. But she says, and I believe correctly, they're not free, right? They're not liberated. And this, so this raises the question then of what it takes to make a former concentration camp inmate free? And I think that's a much larger question and of course one that people in Ukraine are thinking about as, as well, right? If, if you, and this is why I like the, the Ukrainian word which doesn't really exist in other languages, um, deoccupied, right? Deoccupatia, deoccupavane. Like, because if you say that, I was thinking about this a year ago when we talked, I think I was already, I think I had already written it in or was about to, like in, 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 in Yahidne, where they put all of the population of the village into the school basement and held them. When Yahidne was, when it was deoccupied, those people were allowed out of the cellar. They were no longer in the cellar, but they weren't, they weren't free, right? So like if you say the word liberated, I understand people sometimes do and I get it, but when I, when I visited there and I looked at the school and I thought about the fact that those kids can't go to that school again, right? If your kids can't go to school, in some sense, they're not free, right? And so the ne I, I agree that you have to have this thing called negative freedom, but 
only because positive freedom is the right account of freedom, if you see what I mean. Like, the, the, we, we can't have the barriers and the oppression and the torture be, be, because we're people. And it's actually, I mean, Ukrainian examples have actually helped me think, think this through. Um, and, uh, at this level and at, at, at some other levels that maybe we'll, we'll, we'll talk about. Um, but, I mean, for me, it's true that like the, the Ukrainian tradition of being against the state is, is historically very interesting, right? As a historian, I find it interesting because it has actually, it has two levels. Because you know, the, there's the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, which is really all about negative freedom because it's about, it's about nobles who, trying to prevent the state from doing anything to them. Which, by the way, it tells you a lot about the historical origins of the idea of negative freedom. The reason why people like negative freedom is that if it, negative freedom is for me because I already have I already have serfs or slaves, right, or wives or whatever it might be. I have I am oppressing people, and therefore I don't want the state to stop me from doing that, right? So that's basically, with a slight exaggeration, that's basically the Polish, you know, Zwolta-Volnosc, like. Czartoryski or Radziwill or whatever has 10,000 Ukrainian serfs and negative but freedom means that this, there's no state to stop him owning the serfs, right? Like that's a negative account of freedom. In the United States, it's the same thing, by the way. It, it, the origin of the idea of negative freedom is I have slaves and I don't want the state to stop me from having those slaves, right? So negative freedom makes a lot of sense historically if you are a slave owner in ancient Rome, or a slave owner in Georgia, or if you own serfs in 17th century Ukraine, it makes a lot of sense historically that account. But it has, you know, it has, it has, it has this inherent, it has this inherent problem. Okay, well, where was I going with this? No, now I've forgotten where I was going with this. Um, what, what am I answering? Oh, so, but oh, so so in Ukraine you have that tradition, right? There's the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. Freedom means I am, you know. I am I am an I'm an oligarch, or as I said at the time, um, I'm a magnet, right? I'm an oligarch, and I'm against the state. And then you have the rebellion against that. You have the Cossacks against that, and that's like negative freedom against negative freedom, right? And so the Cossack, when you look at the Cossack rebellion, it's like, it's, I mean, again, I'm simplifying somewhat, but it's like some Ukrainians who like one version of negative freedom against other Ukrainians who like another version of negative freedom, right? Uh, it's like the Ukrainians who want double negative freedom against the ones who want single negative freedom. And so there's a lot to work out here historically. But in, in the 21st century, I mean, since Maidan, but especially during this war, I've actually been struck by how, in my, and I'll be interested to see what you say, but in my conversations with various kinds of people, including soldiers and people who've lost their houses and people whose villages were just were recently deoccupied when they talk about freedom it's always been without exception it's been freedom too in some way in some way i have yet to meet anyone who says like now that the russians are gone i'm free like it's always more like the russians got in the way of my future or something like that so it's, it's so in that sense ukraine has been helped like ukraine has been encouraging me contemporary ukraine to think along these lines. It's, it's very interesting that um, we are probably in a, in a very interesting moment when your people like you, great intellectuals from the Western world, are looking at Eastern Europe for inspiration. And that's something that uh, we see with Tony Jad, that's something we, we see with 
uh, Timothy Snyder, that's something we see with Timothy Garton Ash, that's something we see with Marcy Shore, uh, etc. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that I if we look at the way how the post-war, post-Second World War intellectual tradition in the West was developing, it was primarily focused on, on the idea how to uh, construct a society in which totalitarianism will not be possible. I can read like postmodernism thought of French philosophers from Sartre to Derrida in this way. And in, 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 in some aspect, you can say that this actually led to a certain uh, moral rela relativism, right? Because when you're saying that your own, own goal is to deconstruct power structures and say that, you know, we are living in a society which oppresses us and all we need to do is to put down this oppression and the more we, we do, actually, the goal is to have um, kind of a relativized moral environment when the negative freedom is a key thing and then you can do whatever you want in, 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 in literature, in, in music, in, in arts, etc. Whereas Eastern European thinkers, starting from, uh, starting from Patochka and maybe dissidents, uh, Czech, Czechoslovak dissidents, and then Ukrainian dissidents who are really under understudied in the West. Um, a few days ago, we were talking about again about Vasil Stus, right, and anniversary of his death. So these people were saying exactly what you are saying that there are values that are real and I will never go away from this value, right? So it's not like this postmodern culture, okay, I believe in this, but I can also believe in this and this and this, and anything goes. Do you see that inspiration that comes from Eastern Europe? So I, I appreciate that question for many reasons, and one of them is that it allows me to go back and answer some things in your last question, which I didn't, which I didn't answer. It's pr it, I think it's pretty important for me that I'm an East Europeanist for another reason, which refers to your last question, which is that I've spent a lot of time thinking about Marx and, and Marxism. So um, I, I, I won't you know, talk about what I've written about Marxism, but I spent a lot of time thinking about Marxism. And I, I end up in this book arguing something which is against the grain which is that Marxism is not, in fact, an account of positive freedom. That it's actually an account of, it's actually a negative, account of negative freedom. So I make, I shamelessly make a dialectical move and I put libertarianism and Marxism on the same side and my version of freedom on the other side. And the, the rationale for that is this, that um, the Marx's view of freedom was something like we have a we all have an essentially similar human nature and the problem is that private property has crept into our society and then we're born into a world in which there was always already private property and society is structured by ownership and so on and so forth and that affects everything but what's the solution so the solution is remove the private property I believe that's an essentially negative account of freedom because Marx is actually quite weak about how we would live if we were free. He is very weak on what are the good things we would do if we were free people. 
right? His account of what liberation would be is very abstract and, and general, not, not plural at all. Um, so I am in my book making the move of saying that the people who say that private property is the solution to everything and the people who say that private property is the problem with everything are actually on the same side. Um, and, that they're, and that they're wrong for the same fundamental reason. They're not actually enemies dialectically, they're on the same side. Um, and, what, and, and so I make a lot of comparisons, which I'm sure my American readers will find very entertaining, between the late Soviet Union and 21st century United States um, as, I try to, as I try to flesh out this comparison. But this is an important point because in Voloja's last question, the idea was that like, the problem with positive freedom is that positive freedom means that you, know, you, you become aware of necessity. And that's true in an account like Marx's where there's only one bad thing, property, right? But if you're a pluralist, you, then you believe there are many, many bad things. There are many bad things, not, ju not, just, not just one. And you can't, you can't get rid of all of them. And this is relevant to Isaiah, to Isaiah Berlin too. You know, the way that Isaiah Berlin got read was that there was a hard choice to be made between positive freedom and negative freedom. And we had to choose negative freedom because positive freedom in the, in the Marxist version is going to lead to a situation where we're, we're everyone is, the state is going to make us all aspire to be the same. But um, my view is that, that's, that Marxism is actually negative freedom. But in opposition to that reading of Berlin, my reading of Berlin is different. And it may be different, you know, I may be wrong, but it doesn't matter because when you're a philosopher, I've learned you can just do whatever you want with tradition. Um, the, but, but my reading of Berlin is that it's not, you, it's not a tragic situation. Like your job is not to say, I have to make a tragic choice between one thing and the other. Your job is to say, freedom is positive and let's try to pack as many good things into that account of freedom as we can, right? So when, he, when Berlin's admiration of the Romantics was that the Romantics understood that there were many good things and they didn't all fit together into one good thing. And I'm taking that, and I'm getting close to your question, I'm taking that as a not nihilist view, right? So you can be a nihilist and you can say, there are many, there are many things and you, know, you can choose that one and I can choose this one. I'm saying there are many good things, and I believe that's what Berlin thought as well, but it's certainly what Leszek Kołakowski thought, right? And so I'm, I'm conceding, you know, I'm conceding your point, obviously, uh, who was my teacher at Oxford. It's certainly what Leszek Kołakowski thought. He thought there are many good, he, there are many good things, but you can't reconcile them all in, 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 into one good thing. And Marcy Shore, my wife, has actually written about this in much, with much greater subtlety than, than, I, could, than I could manage. But um, I, I, Volodya's premise that there's an East European tradition of this is exactly correct. And in the book, I'm explicitly following it. So I, th th in the second chapter about unpredictability, I'm going with Havel and Patochka and the idea that what's human is our, our capacity to unpredictably combine various kinds of, of values. But th it, this is only interesting because the values really are values, right? They're virtues, they really, they really are good. And the final point I wanted to make here, while I'm being dialectical, which I will be, um, is that I think a lot of the way, the the, a lot of the way that the postmodernism ends up being is actually a form of negative freedom, right? That if I say, you know, 
where I think where it ends up leading you is in a in a in a kind of like dark libertarian direction where you say like I'm not really sure what's good, so I just want nothing to be in my way. Um, or you know you you get into a position where you say I, I I'm uncomfortable in a general way with the world, and the problem is, for example, the patriarchy, right? And I'm you know I can be I'm I am very sympathetic to many feminist critiques of where we are, but the moment you say the problem is the patriarchy, I think you're in a negative freedom terrain because then you're imagining that all I have to do is remove one thing, for example, the patriarchy, and then you know we'll be free because the one bad thing has been taken away and then the good things will come out. So I'm trying to avoid every single account which says you just have to remove the one thing and I'm trying to start from the kind of humble, you know, as you say, East European um, view that there are many good things, they're not all glamorous, right? They're small, they're not necessarily that interesting in and them, in of themselves, but that's where you start. You start with the many, the many good things. That's very interesting in your idea of plurality of values because uh, as we discussed last year, it seems that we were kind of a going parallel directions because this is precisely my reading of ideologies. That I think that ideologies, major European ideologies, liberalism, socialism, nationalism, were born from actually the slogan of French Revolution, uh, freedom, equality, and fraternity. And each of them, by absolutizing one of these values, went very radical. And here, would we can, therefore, I'm asking this first question to which you already responded, what if freedom goes radical. But let me just ask the final question and then I will uh, turn, uh, turn the floor to, to our guests because there are so many people and so many, I think, reflections and, and ideas. Um, what you're describing in 21st century America, you're describing in this book uh, and you compare with the late Soviet Union, with Brezhnev era, and you call it totalitarianism. So it's totalitarianism which was which had faith in one value and then was disenchanted, disappointed about this value, right? And then it had no faith in any value at all. Uh, do you think that Ukrainians struggle right now? And you, you, tra you, you travel to Ukraine, you travel to various places, now you were in the south, uh, last year you were in the north. Do you think that it is precisely the Ukrainian struggle is a struggle against Russian nihilism because we see Russia as actually having the nihilism as its major ideology, the cult of destruction. But at the same time, it, it's also kind of an injection of something new and important to the Western world in which you see this totalitarianism, cynicism, uh, skepticism about everything uh, reigning. I'm going to make a I'm going to make a point with with words here, in, but I think it works in Ukrainian too. The I, I do a lot in the book with the idea of normalization, so normalization in the sense, the Czech word normalizace. So after the Warsaw Pact invasion of 1968, when the Czechs were basic, the Czechoslovaks were basically repressing themselves, 
um, that period was known as normalization. And in, in, in the, the normalization had this terrible deadening effect because it was no longer ideology. So taking your point about ideology, it's now a post-ideological moment. No one actually believes in Marxism anymore. The, the dissidents don't believe in it, but also the party doesn't believe in it. Nobody believes in it. And so what's normal then is this kind of everyday nihilism, right? So, and, and, and Havel writes, Havel writes a, a wonderful play about this. You know, Havel worked in a brewery and he then wrote a, he wrote a one act, you know, maybe two act, I forget, but he wrote a, a simple play called Audience, two character play called Audience in which the, the, there's a dissident and there's the brewmaster and the dissident is working in the brewery and the brewmaster is friends with the local secret policeman. And of course the brewmaster has to write reports on the dissident, but the brewmaster doesn't like to write. And so he brings the dissident in and they have some beers together and the brewmaster says, you know, why don't you write the reports on yourself? Like that will be easier for all of us because you're a writer, you're a good writer, you know what you're doing anyway, and I don't like to write. So what, wouldn't it just be more efficient if you wrote the reports about yourself? And of course it, it is more efficient, right? Um, and in the play, not in reality, but in the play, the dissident does write the reports on himself. And then the, the key sentence from the play, which people remember is, everything is shit. So like once he does that, he, he's, 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 he's lost the thing that he still had, right? Which was his dignity, right? He lost, some, he lost another kind of normality. So a lot, a lot hangs in what you think is normal, right? So Volodya was nice enough to mention that I was just in the South. I was in a, I was in a, in a, in a village um, in Hersonsk Oblast where all, every single, every single hut was destroyed, every single house was destroyed. Um, and I happened to be talking to a Pani, Pani Maria and Pani Maria was living in this, this little tiny metal thing, you know, donated by yeah, not the Swedes or maybe the UN, I'm not sure, but a little tiny metal hut. And, you know, she wanted, she wanted me to see what it looked like inside. And like inside she had everything, you know, beautifully arranged. Like everything was geometrical, you know, the rugs and the bedspreads and everything was in a square. It was all quadratic. It looked like Ukrainian futurism, which I didn't say to her. I mean, but, but like everything was in neat order. And like she, and you know, so I walked out and she said, you know, she said, you know, she said, yak, normalno, right? And so, and by, by there, when she says normalno, she means like everything's good, right? Like everything is good. Like everything is the way that it should be. Not just the way that it is, but the way that it should be, right? And it's like those two different senses of the word normal, that normal is just the way things are, or that normal is the way that things should be, right? Like a lot hangs on that, on that, on that distinction, right? And so in, I'm taking that normalization period or that the, the late Soviet period, more broadly speaking, as, a, as, a, as an example of one value becoming no values and what happens then, where you have this kind of you know, sociological conformism 
where people are alert to power and they're very good at reading signals and changing and adapting, but they're not, no one is pretending that what they're adapting to is a norm in the sense of what really should be. It's just a way of being in the world. And so, yeah, I am very concerned that we are like that too, you know, that the West can be like that too, that if our version of an ideology is that if you're just an entrepreneur, everything will be okay, right? Or if you, know, if you just believe in freedom in the sense that we talked, you talked about at the beginning, like freedom in the negative sense, everything will be okay. If you believe something like that, your value commitment will very quickly become a zero value commitment. And you do, like you can see this empirically in like if you look at attitude towards Putin, attitudes towards Putin in the United States, where it's the, it's, the, it's the people who are like, anything goes, you know, like nothing really matters, it's all about power. They, they like Putin. You know, it's not the, that there's an idea there for most of them. It's just like, it's just, the, it's, it's the absence of an idea. And then if you look at the Republicans who really don't like Putin, um, those are the Republicans, you know, who I, I may disagree with them about their values, but those are the Republicans who have some kind of value commitment. And then they, for them, it's like clear, okay, this is not the right thing. I mean, one could wish that there were more of them, um, but for, the, for, for them, it's like it's clear that they don't like the totalitarianism, right? So by totalitarianism, I just mean, it's a very simple thing, just going from one value to zero values, which is a kind of historical observation, right? Like what comes after one value is, is zero values. It could be. Adam um, Michnik, to refer to another East European who figures in this book, who did his best writing in prison, one of the things he wrote in prison was, the people you have to watch out for are the ones who believe in one thing or zero things. Those are the two dangerous classes of people. And what I'm trying to observe is that the people who believe in one thing are dangerous when they believe in one thing, and then they're also dangerous when they believe in zero things. And yes, so when I look at Russia, it's like, I mean, there are many explanations of what, of, of what happened in Russia, and I don't wanna say there's only one explanation, but you can say that they went from one value to zero values twice over, right? That like, they the transition to the transition to communism nobody believed it, that, and then their version of capitalism was also impossible to believe in, and it went bad very quickly, right? And so you have this kind of double this double historical push towards nihilism, which leads you to this kind of exuberant, you know, self contradictory, you know, pride where. The thing that they're competing on is who is the better nihilist, right? Um, who, like, who is like more consistent at being the most snide, or who does the best job at making all values seem senseless, right? Like yesterday, Putin, in a couple of sentences, managed to claim that Ukraine was a Nazi state and that it was run by the Jews and that that's normal because Jews are usually responsible for Nazism, right? So like basically like some of the lowest things that you can say, like some of the worst things that you can say, but just kind of tossed out there, you know? And then like the rest of us have to deal with it and clean it up. But it's like, that's the art. Like the art is to take everybody else's values and turn those values into problems for, for other people. And then when, I mean, there's a lot to say about what the Russians are thinking when they're, when they're fighting this war, but I mean, my sense is that it's a kind of, it's a kind, they, their mode is competitive hopelessness. So like, of course there are no values, of course nothing is true, of course might makes right. 
but we're better at that than you are, right? We're better at that. We're, we're authentic because we're the ones who accept that there's no truth, no values, right? And, and um, you know, they are good at that, many of them. Uh, but what's, then what's enraging about Ukraine is, is not accepting the premise. So if, you know, if the premise is nothing's true, nothing is of value, then my community is better than your community because I say so, <laughs> right? I mean, there's no truth, there's no value, there's, but my hopelessness is better than yours because it's mine, right? Um, and so that, that's what I mean by competitive hopelessness. But what if you reject the premise? Like, what if you say, well, actually, like, things aren't perfect, but this democracy thing we seem to have in Ukraine, it's not perfect, it's not great, you know, but it's better than what you, you know, it's, it, and then, you know, the civil society thing we have, it's kind of messy, but, you know, it does its job, and actually we sort of believe that we're making things better, and th that then becomes infuriating. And, I mean, there are, of course, other things going on, but at a philosophical level, I think that's not an incorrect portrait of the Russian-Ukrainian confrontation. I think one of the reasons they're furious at you is that you don't accept the premise. You don't accept that it's about it's about competitive hopelessness, um, and I think and and that's and the thing they want to beat into you is that like you should be hopeless. Like we're going to teach you to be hopeless, and that's what when they say like you have to learn to love Russia, which seems so crazy. I think that's what they mean is you have to learn to be hopeless and, and, and be one of us in the sense of being hopeless. Thank you for these strong words. So Ukrainian Ukrainian idea is to. is to have a hope despite hopelessness, right? We remember Lesya Ukrainka. So, questions, remarks, ideas, please raise your hands and go ahead. Aaron, and then... Thanks so much for taking the time to come to Ukraine. Oh, sorry, um, my name is Aaron Wenlin. I'm Vice President for International Affairs at the Kiev School of Economics, and I'm Professor of Public Philosophy at the Kiev School of Economics as well. Um, so as a philosopher, I'm going to try and have a little dialogue here with you um, and maybe uh, apply the criticism you applied to Marx to yourself. Um, of course, I appreciate that a talk is different than writing Das Kapital or these various books. But you had... I hope so, because he never finished Das Kapital. Yeah, of course, yes. Um, I was just curious, I suppose, what is your positive account of freedom, or rather, what is positive freedom to you? So it just, it, it was a bit unclear to me what your positive vision is, particularly given that you said it's a condition of possibility for negative freedom. So positive freedom is, is sort of first or prior. It needs to, it's a condition of possibility for negative freedom, so it comes first. Um, what is that positive vision for you? Um, and maybe you can just unpack that a little bit. And maybe just one quick comment. I was surprised that there was no reference to Joseph Raz and the morality of freedom, because he seems to share a lot of your commitments, moral pluralism, um, perfectionism as uh, something like liberal perfectionism uh, is the idea he kind of works on in the morality of freedom. So this is just more a comment than a question, but I was surprised he didn't come up. Let's take some real questions. Timothy, thanks so much for for your work, for your inspiration, and for your support. Uh, my first 
I'm Andrei Kulakov from uh, Internews Ukraine and also developing this project Ukraine World. Uh, so my uh, first question, very quick and very brief. Uh, you was talking about the reality of values and you said that values are so real like rock. Do you mean by rock, the real rock like Led Zeppelin and Deep Purple, right? <laughs> and But uh, the, real, the real question uh, is, uh, uh, when we are talking about um, uh, freedom, uh, it's uh, uh, always, not always, but very often is related to the uncertainty, to uh, existence of different and various options uh, with the not right, but the necessity to select, to, to choose and to develop your own judgment on this, on that, and on with the building of your own policies, scenarios, and so on. But how could we cultivate uh, the freedom politically and globally uh, in this situation when most people, uh, most people will vote rather for certainty, for security, uh, for predictability, how political leaders should uh, act and should win and, and should build their policies uh, among, uh, within this context. Not only in particular countries, but when we are talking about, it's, it's, it's not polite maybe, but there is a term global south, for example, who will vote for, for security, for some uh, people in Ukraine also who will vote for security. Uh, and in, in the United States and, and so on. Thank you so much. Well, Alexey Panich, Pen Ukraine, and the translator of Timothy Snyder. I guess you know the guy. Uh, I would like to get back once more to Russia, not because I want to, because I have to. I believe, in a sense, the question of Russia is more important than the question of Ukraine because it is more or less clear what we want Ukraine to be after the war. We know the goals, we know the challenges, we know the threats. The big question is what would Russia face after the war? It seemed to me, maybe I am wrong, but I got an impression from some of your interviews and articles that you believe in democratic, liberal Russia in its current internationally recognized borders. It could be liberalized and democratized, meaning uh, Chechnya is still inside, Tatarstan, uh, Bashkortostan still inside. The question is, do you believe that Russia in these borders is not an empire or could not be not an empire? Or to make it, to deimperialize Russia, we have to disintegrate it or help it to disintegrate further. Thank you. So I'm going to take the, I'm going to take the th questions in, re in reverse order because what I have to say about the second question is going to bear directly on the first question. And the third question is the one that I have to work hard to turn into a philosophical question because I'm, I'm in philosopher mode, not geopolitician mode. So the, 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 the Empire and colonialism figure very heavily in this book, and not just Russian empire and Russian colonialism, also European and American 
because uh, I'm concerned here with trying to elucidate an idea of freedom which is not, in fact, exploitative. So most, of, I, think, I think it's fair to say that pretty much all of the ideas of freedom which have seemed commonsensical have been in some way, in fact, exploitative. Um, and so here I will take on, you know, a lot of the late 20th century feminist, African-American, post-colonial and other critiques. I think it's right that we don't have an idea of freedom yet, which is not exploitative. And historically speaking, this has a great deal to do with empire. So in this work, um, Russia, the Russian war in Ukraine figures as a colonial war in the, in the kind of sense that Franz Fanon thought of colonial wars, namely that it has to do with not seeing other people as being fully human, not seeing their bodies as being human the way that your body is human. And by, and by the way, I, it's, hard to I, it's interesting, it's hard to stress this enough in a philosophical conversation, which is part of the problem. This book is very much about bodies. It's very much about the development of bodies. And this goes to the, I'm skipping ahead now a bit to the second question, but when you, when we, when, when you ask me like about voting and political leaders and so on, I take the point, but I'm concerned here primarily about how we would ideally create free people to start out with, which is why the first chapter is about child development. So I'm not, I'm not starting child development, early childhood education. Um, it starts with birth. The first event in this book is birth, because I, we have this problem that when we start thinking about freedom, we, we start thinking about, I mean, I'm going to make fun a little bit now, but we start thinking about an adult, and that adult is usually male, and that adult male usually has property, and it's the 19th century, and it's the British Empire, <laughs> and... And you've got all that going for you, but you don't, you never ask two questions. You never ask how you got to the British Empire and what that did to other people, but you also never ask how you got to adulthood and how you became the kind of person who could stand there alone and be free. Because I believe that you can stand there alone and be free, but that it takes a huge amount of work to get there. So this is all kind of so I'm, st I'm just starting in a different place. I'm starting, I'm starting with how you would create a free person, and I'm trying to apply 20th and 21st century um, scientific knowledge about things which may seem to be unrelated, like, for example, childhood development. There's a lot of this book is based on what we now know about early childhood development and what children need. Because these, like, it, and it, bear, it does bear directly on your question despite appearances, because freedom and security should work together. If, if you can create secure conditions for people when they're very young, it's easier for them to take risks and evaluate risks, right? But if, you, if people don't get certain things when they're young, they're much more likely to think of freedom as something you trade for security, which I think logically, by the way, is, is, is wrong. I think that's one of the traps. I think, I think freedom and security are actually, they go together 99 times out of 100. It's a very rare situation when they don't go together. And I think the idea that you have to trade freedom for security is basically a con. Generally, freedom and security go together. They generally go together. But that, that claim is gonna make more sense if we start thinking about 
freedom from the point of view of you know of of a of a body developing and learning and becoming over the course of a life. Anyway, so in an in an empire, um, in an empire or an expanding empire or colonial empire, again staying very conceptual about this, I don't see the other people as being fully human, right? And and since I don't see them as being being fully human it's very easy for me to fall into a trap where I, the Russian soldier, or I, the Russian citizen, am not really being treated as fully human either. And so to answer your question very briefly, I'm not gonna get into like what I think is gonna happen to, you know, Ingushetia, um, or, you know, to, but, but or, or to the Buryats. That's, because I just think, think that's a different seminar. But what I do think is that Russia really has to lose. Um, if only, if like all you care about is the people inside the Russian Federation, um, and we forget about everything else, Ukrainians, the rule of law, stopping a war in China, these are all very important things, but even if we don't care about those things, and all we care about is citizens of the Russian Federation, what we need, what we would wish for them is decisive defeat. And the reason why, why, why that's true, now this is all in Road to Unfreedom, which Volodya Kani mentioned, but the way that European colonial empires do become something better is by losing wars, right? And that's true of all of them, and or almost all. And the nice thing about it is that they forget it after it happens. So, you know, the the British, like if you look at the whole European Union story, the European Union story is about how, unlike the Okay, how many European Union citizens have I got here? I've got some Italians. Yeah. I mean, the whole European Union story is, unlike the Americans, we know that war is bad, and therefore we traded coal and steel, and, there, and therefore, you know, we, you know, this, that, the other thing, which is complete nonsense, right? Europeans, European empires kept fighting imperial wars until they lost them. And then, you know, like illustrious in Ethiopia, also in Stalingrad, you know, tens of thousands of Italians died at Stalingrad, as everybody forgets. Um, but, you know, the Germans lost theirs over Ukraine, um, the, the Dutch lost theirs in Indonesia right after the Second World War, the French in, in Southeast Asia and Algeria. And then once they lose their imperial war, then they make, as they, you know, famously de Gaulle, then you make the choice for Europe, right? And then once you make the choice for Europe, you forget about all the imperial wars. They never happened. We've always been nice Europeans, and unlike the Americans, we don't fight wars. <laughs> the, and, uh, yeah. Um, and, yeah. So, and, and so, and, and, and I, I, I don't say that's, I mean, I, I, I believe the European Union is a beautiful thing. It lacks, it lacks a certain amount of self-awareness, and the self-awareness it lacks is a problem in the Russo-Ukrainian war. Because if you follow the line of reasoning which I just gave, then if you're a European, you think, oh, it's natural that Russia's fighting a war. It's not surprising. We all did this too, until quite recently. And it would be good if they lost. Not only for Ukraine and for us, but for them, right? It'd be good for the Russians if they lost, which is not a point which I see Europeans making often enough. And the reason they don't make it often enough is because they don't remember how good it was for them that they lost, right? <laughs> um, it, it, like, look at Germany, like, you know, the, I, I, I live some of the time in Austria. It's a wonderful, it's a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful country. And it owes everything, <laughs> everything to defeat, right? Not, and this is important, 
not peace, but defeat, right? Not peace, but defeat. You know, what was brought to Vienna in 1945 was not peace, it was defeat. And so, I mean, not going into the details of what happens to Russia, because I, my view about this is that nobody knows, and it's, not, it's fundamentally not Ukraine's problem, and it's also fundamentally not America's problem. I mean, we, Americans have this idea that, which I find as a non-diplomat hilarious, that our Russian policy actually sometimes has consequences in Russia, which are what we want, which as far as I can tell has not been true since the mid-1980s. I mean, there's not, I don't think there's a moment where we have had a Russian policy which actually like led to the thing happening in Russia that we wanted to. Right. Um, I mean, the Russians throw this propaganda at us all the time about how we wanted to destroy the Soviet Union and we did it. And this is part of this like myth of American, like American omnipotence, which is just crazy. I mean, we tried like hell to keep the Soviet Union together, as Ukrainians will remember, right? Like President Bush coming to Kiev, right? We were trying like hell to keep the Soviet Union together all the way through December 1991, like the correspondent, we have the, the, the correspondence of the presidential archives has been released. I mean, we're writing letters, the president is writing letters in December of 1991, we are trying to hold the Soviet Union together and we failed. And basically at every move, every moment since then, we've had Russia policy and it's never succeeded, right? We, and so the idea that like, we can now decide, okay, we're gonna like, we're gonna help Ukraine win the war, but we're also gonna make sure Russia doesn't fall apart. You know, like that's, we can't do that, right? Like we just don't have that kind of power. And nobody does, right? Nobody does. Uh, so, so anyway, like I, I, my view is that, you know, Russia started this terrible war and it's gonna have consequences in Russia and the Russians will in their Russian way, they will figure it out. They will figure it out and then they will forget they lost the war in Ukraine. That's the one thing I'm sure of. They'll, I mean, they'll lose and then they'll forget that they lost. Which if you're a European, like you, like you know, like you know that you're good at that, right? I mean, we're all so good. Um, you know, I don't want to talk the Americans down. Um, but, uh, but anyway, so going on to the second, sorry. So that was my answer to, the, to, to Russia. I mean, but I would also say, I would question the premise a little bit because I think it's actually very important that Ukrainians think about what kind of Ukraine should come after the war. Um, and that's another thing which the Second World War teaches, that the people who were in the resistance, uh, the not like the non-communist resistance at least, all across Europe, none of them said, just like, you, like no Ukrainian, as far as I know, says, we're fighting for February of 22. Like everything was great in February of 22, right? Nobody's fighting to get back to February of 22. Just like in the Second World War, nobody was fighting for September 1939. Like there were no banners which said like, like before the war, you know, everyone understood there were big problems before the war. And so yeah, the war has to be a chance where it, you think about how things would be, how things would be better. Okay, um, on the second question and about on, 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 on rock and roll. Okay, so. Uh, all right, so um, at the end of the Second World War, and this is gonna be my answer to the first question too, so I hope it doesn't, I hope it works. Um, at, the end of the second, at the end of the Second World War, the Soviets win, but there's no legal settlement. After the invasion of Prague, after the invasion of Czechoslovakia in 1968, one of Brezhnev's preoccupations, and this goes with the general scheme of normalization, was that he wanted legal affirmation 
of the post-war settlement. He wanted the Americans, the Europeans, to accept the 1945 settlement. And as a result of that desire, we had something called the Helsinki Final Act in 1975, in which we, you know, the Americans, Canadians, the Europeans, Soviet Union, we agreed to start some arms control negotiations. We agreed on some other things. Um, and then there were two or three paragraphs about human rights, which were sort of trivial, like it's, a, it's a, just a few sentences, and all they do is they say, the signatories affirm some agreements which they already assigned, right? Okay, so Brezhnev wants a predictable world, right? This is what he wants. He wants geopolitically for us to accept that the Balts are part of the Soviet Union, the Polish borders are legitimate, all this stuff, and we accept it. You know, we say, okay, the borders are there. In exchange, we just want you to talk about arms control, and by the way, a few sentences about human rights. So Brezhnev wants the whole world to be predictable, right? But what do people do with those two or three paragraphs about human rights? So people in Ukraine and, uh, and in Russia and in the Balts and in uh, Slovakia, Czechoslovakia, Poland, they take these three paragraphs about human rights and they say, oh, well, these are now part of the law on the land and we're gonna treat them as though they're normal in the sense of like what's really good and true. Like we're gonna pretend that, like, that the state actually believes in its own laws and we're gonna pretend that human rights are real. And that becomes the basis for, or one basis anyway, for um, the Ukrainian Helsinki group, um, for, for Charter 77, for the committee, the Workers' Defense Committee in Poland, Komitet Obroni Robotnikov. Um, it, it becomes a basis for Russian human rights activity, which is going on already. And, and the idea of freedom that these people have is precisely about unpredictability, right? Like their version of freedom is, you know, like Maranovich, you know, I want to live a normal Ukrainian life, where normal means the thing I feel like doing right now, because I'm a Ukraine, like I want to sing in, I want to sing in Ukraine. I just want to have like my ordinary life as a human. You know, Havel talks about affirming your values, but they're like they're very. It's like Pani Maria, like normalno. It's just like the little things in your life that you actually believe in. That's freedom, right? But it's all unpredictable and human. It's. And, uh, and so this desire for predictability leads to unpredictability. But, okay, but Havel, Havel. So Havel goes into public life in, during a trial in 1977. The only reason Havel ever becomes president and is, becomes famous and is, is that he, he decides to stick up for a rock and roll band called the Plastic People of the Universe. Okay, so the Plastic People of the Universe was a Czech rock and roll band. They started out as a cover band for the Velvet Underground in 1968. And like all rock and roll bands in normalized Czechoslovakia, they were surveilled on the logic that rock and roll was unpredictable and it brought in values, which was true. So they were, they were prosecuted and Havel went to their trial and he decided, okay, I'm gonna stand up for these people because he understood that their music was bringing authentic values into the world. He, wasn't, he didn't particularly like rock and roll himself, but he thought rock and roll music, unpredictable, human, authentic, true, I'll stand up for it. So he stands up for it, signs Charter 77, gets imprisoned, becomes the Václav Havel who then figures as an East European thinker in my book, essentially. 
But what had to happen for all that to happen? Okay, so the plastic people of the universe are called the plastic people of the universe. Okay, zaraz trochę szkoda, że ja po ukraińsku se ne mogu robić, but because this is a little complicated. Okay, the plastic people of the universe are called the plastic people because of a of a of a song by Frank Zappa, which is called the Plastic People. And the, pl the song, The Plastic People, which has very interesting lyrics about freedom, the last line of it is, go home, check yourself, you think we're talking about somebody else. Um, uh, but it's like, it's about like plastic is like, you can, you know, plastic is conformity, right? But like you have to be your own person. So the, this Czech band named itself after the, the song, The Plastic People. But the song, The Plastic People, only exists um, because of another song called Louie Louie, which I don't know if you've heard, but like every American has heard it. Every American is the one that goes dun 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 Sing, sing. Okay, yeah, right. That would be cool. So so um so that that song was um was was made popular by an American rock and roll band called the Kingsmen. But it only existed because it was written by an African-American called Richard Berry, who wrote it on a roll of toilet paper in a club in Los Angeles, um, which is an example of like how rock and roll came to be. Like it's all about, it's about black music meeting white people basically. But Richard Berry wrote that song because at the club in Los Angeles, there was a Cuban bandmaster, a cha-cha bandmaster called Rene Touzet and he was playing a song which was called, um, La, I think it was called La Loca, La Loca Cha Cha. And that had the riff, dun dun dun, dun 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 dun. So Richard Berry plagiarized that riff, put it in his song Louis Louis, okay? But Rene Touzet, the Cuban bandmaster, was only in America because there was a hurricane in Cuba, okay? And maybe that hurricane was caused by a butterfly. Now where am I going with this? Because these things which like look like big history in retrospect, like human rights, they contain an ironic angle. Brezhnev was actually aiming for predictability and he got an idea of freedom about which was unpredictability, but also like all the things that went into that situation where Havel becomes the famous Havel, you have to like go back to America and rock and roll and black people and like all kinds of, all kinds of unpredictable combinations. And this goes to what I think positive freedom is. Okay, so positive freedom is a world in which like you can make up a song in like some bathroom in Los Angeles and halfway across the world, somebody's gonna stand up in a courtroom <laughs> to defend a band, right? Positive freedom is, 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 is freedom in which we are combining lots of different values in unpredictable ways. It's a positive freedom means that each of us is different but not just in a cliched way that like we're different now, but we're different because we've had the chance over the course of a life to learn how to recognize and identify and combine values so that sometimes we get to a point where we might do something extraordinary. Most of the time we'll be, we'll be pretty boring, but at some moment we might do something extraordinary and think we had to do it because, because we were free. So I don't have a vision of positive freedom. Like it can't be so simple. It can't be like one thing. It's because positive freedom means, because there's a, like a geometry where things don't all add up. Like the values don't all add up. 
but what you know we can make it as we can make it as easy as possible for us all to be positively free but when we do that that means that each of us will combine values in a different way and we'll get into situations which are not predictable and which are interesting and those not predictable interesting situations are what make us humans with with character now obviously so another thing that Havel was obsessed with was the coming of the computer and the politics which would make a digitalized politics which would make us predictable. He was writing in 1975 about this, so like long before it actually happened. But this has now happened. And one of the things that I'm working against with is the digitalization of everything and the fact that we're now we are in fact living, you know, in a big machine, the internet, which is aimed at making us predictable. So as my colleague Daniel Markovitz at Yale, who's a great thinker, pointed out when I was working on this project a few years ago, the traditionally the central category of freedom has been rationality. And I'm trying to replace rationality with unpredictability. I'm putting unpredictability where rationality used to be. Next time we will invite Tim Snyder to make a lecture about rock and roll. <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, in this space we combine music, poetry, and philosophy all the time, so. Next questions, remarks? Good evening. My name is Laren Pavluk. Uh, I'm a writer. And also now uh, I'm an officer of Ukrainian army. And my question is, uh, I feel like we have like sort of discussion with some people in Western society uh, whether this war is so-called war of Putin or whether all the Russians are responsible for what's going on. And I feel like most Ukrainians think that Russians are responsible, those who actively support this war, and even those who passively support it, and especially those who take part in the war. But ironically, everybody knows that Putin is a dictator, and dictatorship means that people have no freedom in that country. And if they don't have freedom, which what Russians say, they say, we don't have freedom, this is not up to us to decide, it's not our fault. So if they are not free, you can easily think that probably they cannot bear responsibility for the situation. And if it is so, you can easily justify any genocide in the world. So I do believe they are responsible, but help me with arguments. <laughs> Thank you. Alyashandra, Editor-in-Chief, Euromaidan Press. Thank you for everything that you do for Ukraine. Um, so you said that freedom is the ultimate value where everything, all other values can flourish. And in Ukraine, we feel like the territory of freedom has been expanding, especially since Euromaidan. It's been, freedom is um, also a great value for most Ukrainians now. It hasn't always been this way, but it has come to be this way recently. But we see that in other societies. In Russia, freedom is not the ultimate value. And most people are okay with being unfree and supporting a dictator and somehow there is not this value and in your book on tyranny you also stress that um, there may come a point in democracy where freedom stops being the ultimate value and democracy starts to decline so I would like to ask um, what happens in societies for freedom to start becoming the ultimate value and what happens in societies where it doesn't become that value where people do not uphold the necessity of freedom 
Victoria Marchenko, USA, but my uh, question will be um, for me as a citizen of Ukraine. What do you think <clears throat> the West, collective West, should do more of now in order to make Ukraine win faster? Tatiana Filevska, creative director of the Ukrainian Institute. Um, you're saying unpredictable, but you don't say spontaneous. Is it different? How is it different? And for me, spontaneous means creative, and this is how it's connected to the essence of humankind. So just develop on this. I have philosophical education, so I'm also in the mood. <laughs> So when you um, when you answer questions, you try to think of a way that they're all like deeply connected and uh, and and are about the same question, um, which is a little hard in this in this last round of questions. There's a there's a common element though that I'm going to mention before I try to answer them specifically, which has to which is which is the body. So again, I've had a hard time. In the book, it's easier, um, but it, 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 I find it it's interesting that in a philosophical conversation, it's kind of hard to get to the body and how important the body is in like the things that allow us to be spontaneous all have to do with things that we've done before with our bodies so like we are we can be spontaneous but it doesn't come out of nowhere it comes out of practices and like the various things that we learn how to do i maybe ironically but the, like those things allow us to make these jumps into spontaneity. The, uh, the, the, two, the, the four thinkers who are the most important in this book, are the, the five are Franz Fanon, who I mentioned, and then Lesha Kolkowski and Václav Havel, who have come up, and then two who I haven't mentioned, but Simone Weil and, and Edith Stein. And um, Edith Stein made the very important point that the she said the creation of capacity belongs to freedom. So like we can only do the things that we know how, we know how to do. So I'm very sympathetic to unpredictability. Um, and the reason why I'm leaning on unpredictability rather than spontaneity, which would, you know, which is a the more familiar term from like aren't and, but the reason I'm on unpredictability is because of this world that we're in where I believe that a primary way that we are, that we are prepared for oppression is that we are made predictable. So we are, the, the, the data that machines have about us allows the algorithms, not, it's not just that we're classified, it's that we're, we're eroded, right? So if, if I'm known to be a middle-aged American, you know, white male or whatever, of a certain income class, the algorithms work on me in a certain way to kind of make me more like the lowest common denominator of those people, right? And so I'm, because I, I believe that, in the book I call this predictification, so I make up a word, um, that there's like this predictifying power out there in the world, not just that we're predictable, that, that we're made more predictable. And so that's why I'm saying unpredictability. I'm not really trying to oppose spontaneity, which is a word that I like. My hesitation, my only hesitation about it would be that that we have to pre we have to prepare for spontaneity, right? That like the kids who get, and so in the book, the book one of the ways the book is structured is that it goes over the course of a life, and so, you know, the, the kids who are able to get more security and and predictability at a certain age 
are more able to be spontaneous or unpredictable later on, right? Just because of the kinds of creatures we are. And so if we care about unpredictability or spontaneity, then we have to build in certain things earlier on, which is like why a lot of like, a lot of my freedom talk in this book is actually about small children for this reason and birth for that matter and the conditions around the conditions around birth. But there's no, there's no really strong reason why I'm not talking about spontaneity. And philosophers often say, like, they say what you say, and I, you know, I, 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 I agree. Um, the, the, um, but this bears a little bit on what's happening in the, what's happening in the war, and you know what it, what it means to, to, to live and die, right? Because. You know, if we're talking about these, like if we're, if we're going to be serious about these subjects, I think we have to, if it, if it works, you know, if the argument works, it also has to work on the battlefield or else it's not true, right? If it's not true during a war, it's also not true in peacetime. You know, we can't just do philosophy that works in peacetime, right? Because then it's not philosophy. We can't, I mean, we can't do philosophy that only works when you're already an adult and you have property. Like it has to work from birth onwards, right? Or else it's not really, that's kind of like, I may I may fail in a very grandiose way here, but my premise is that it has to work in like it has to work for all of life. And so this isn't quite answering your question, but it bears on a little bit. When people like look at this war from a certain angle, they say like, okay, well, X number of Russians have died and Y number of Russian Y number of Ukrainians have died. And let's count that up together and like and then okay, Z number of people have died. And that's bad to a factor of Z. And of course, it's, I mean, it's, that it is bad that people have died. But there's also the question of what people were doing and why <laughs> right up to the moment that they die. Because we're all, you know, we are all going to die. And so what, like, what angle, what trajectory were they on? Why were they putting their lives at risk or was their life, was their life being put at risk for them? You know, the things that they were, were they dying for something in a way which was meaningful for them? You can't die for something. When you die, you're dead. But were you putting your life at risk for something that had meaning for you as an individual? Or were you just kind of being born along on a collective flow that you never really knew how to resist? And I'm not saying that all Russians are one way and all Ukrainians are another way in this, but I'm saying it this makes a, I think this makes a, a great deal of difference, which isn't always seen. So it's not like I'm not happy if, if Russians are killed because they f could not find it in themselves to be somewhere else than they were. But I do think it matters. I mean, I think, like, I think it matters whether they were free or not, just as I think it matters whether Ukrainians were, were free or not up to the last moment. I do think differently about, you know, I mean, like, I'm sure you know more about like too many people I know, right? But I think differently about it when I have some sense of like what they thought they were doing, right? When I have some sense of like, yeah, they were in this and they didn't, they didn't choose the war, they didn't choose the overall situation, but they had some sense. And I, and I think differently about it when it's a situation of irresponsibility where, you know, or like totally responsibility where the premise is we can't do anything about it. So in your question, there's this tricky relationship between an absolute situation and an empirical situation because it's never the case that we bear zero responsibility, right? 
there's always a little bit of responsibility. And when you confuse, not, you're not doing this, but like, I think the error is you confuse, one confuses a situation where empirically there isn't that much room for choice with the absolute situation of no responsibility. And, you know, so, so the thinkers that I'm relying on here, all of whom had some experience with prison and, you know, bad things, they tended to take the view, and, and, and Patochka is a good example of this, that you should always be exercising the muscle of taking more responsibility than it seems reasonable to take. Like, that's the way you should be pushing yourself. Like, that's the kind of, like, that's the exercise. Like, those are the muscles that you're building up. Because when you do that, then you might see a chance to do something that you wouldn't otherwise have seen. And so if you, if you get it, if you get, if you, if you say it's a dictatorship and nobody's free, then you're not exercising those muscles, right? You're just saying, okay, well, look, that, this is just the way life is. And then you're kind of giving up. So my, my view is that you, one has to say that Russians have some responsibility because the moment we say that no human, that any human could have no responsibility, we're kind of giving up the whole show, right? Um, and it, you know, it's true that some countries are freer than other countries, right? It, but it's never the case that you don't have any responsibility. And, and so, and the, and, and, the, and, the, and the way that the, like, the moral argument and the empirical argument work together is that if you accept the moral position that you can have zero responsibility, that also affects the world, right? That affects the world, and always in a bad way. Right, so you know, in the U.S., the people who think like eh, we know, it's like they're conspiracies, and like we don't it doesn't really matter what we think. It always moves in a negative direction, right? So I hope, I hope that helps to supply you with with an argument. I mean, this this is actually the problem that a lot of East European thinkers were very much concerned with. I mean, precisely, the Ukrainian dissidents in the '70s, like they're, and you can't expect everyone to be like them. But you know they were trying to say, well, I'm going to exercise a little bit, not a whole lot, but a little bit of responsibility. I'm going to make a list of people who were sent to the gulag. That's what I'm going to do, and that you push in that direction. You push in that direction. So that's that's as good as that's as close as I can come to to an answer. I mean, I think it's wrong. Like there are a lot of courageous Russians who have taken a lot of risks, and not every Ukrainian has taken a lot of risks, right? There are definitely courageous Russians who have taken risks. Yes, there are. And um, so one can't say that like all Russians by virtue of being Russians are like this, because the moment you do that, you're saying there are humans out there who can't take responsibility. And the moment you say there are humans out there who can't take responsibility, we're all, we're all giving up, right? So my view is that you have to say Russians have to take some responsibility. We should all be taking a little bit more responsibility than we are. And that applies that applies to that applies to everyone. Okay, so I'm, I'm I've got left. Um, so freedom, responsibility, freedom and responsibility. By the way, like for me, go together, right? Like you, here's something that I've observed about this war with Ukrainians and Russians. Because um, I've, I mean, I so I'm in a different position than most of you here, right? I that you may have noticed this too. Ukrainians generally feel guilty. 
well, like that you're like a lot of Ukraine. So maybe this hasn't been your experience, but that they think I could have done more. Right. Right. Like I'm driving a van, but like I could have driven my van one more time to Herson or, you know, I, I'm in the, I'm in the army, but my buddy died or I'm in the army, but I could have joined six months before. Right. Um, most of the Ukraine, I mean, I know a certain kind of, you know, but these, but most of the people I know who are on the Ukrainian side, let's put it that way, they feel guilty in that sense. Like they feel like, okay, like I'm doing the things I should be doing, but really I should be doing more. And that guilt comes from responsibility. Like that's responsibility, right? So when you're free, you're always going to end up feeling a little bit bad because you're never going to be 100% fulfilling all of your value commitments. And every va everything you do, even if you're doing the right thing, it's also going to be in some measure the wrong thing, right? Because like, you know, you, maybe you're even if you're a soldier, it's possible that your talents would be better spent doing something else, right? Like there's, there's no thing you can do which is 100% the right thing. And what I've noticed in this war, just as an observation, is that Ukrainians tend to feel guilty in this sense. Like, I, I've, you know, I could be doing something, I could be doing more. And like, I know some Ukrainians who are doing like, I'm <laughs> doing amazing, amazing things. And the ones who are doing amazing, amazing things, like they tell me like they feel bad about this. So this is what I mean. Whereas on the Russian side and on the people who are on the Russian side, nobody seems to feel guilty, right? Like that's a, that's a, it's a really striking thing. And I, by the way, I'm stealing this off. I mean, I, I, I'm not gonna say who I have this observation from, because but this is not an original observation for me, but on the Russian side, nobody seems to feel guilty. And even like, when you're talking to Russians who are against the war, somehow the discussion often ends up being about how it's like not really their fault and like they don't really feel bad about it. And I, this is a this for me is really an important signal of freedom because I think if you're free, you end up feeling guilty a lot, right? Because that like because responsibility and freedom go together. Because if you're free, you know like there are a bunch of good things I could be doing. I I really believe they're good things. No matter what I'm doing, I haven't done them all, right? Whereas if you're not free, if you think like, well, it's like all part of some larger conspiracy and like, or it's all part of some larger structure, why do I feel that? Why do I feel bad? You know, why should I ever feel bad in that situation? And so, the, like, the one of the weird things about this war, and I'm waiting for somebody to write this up because I'm not the first person to say this. Other people have observed this, but one of the weird things about this war is like, you talk to Ukrainians and like they're always feeling bad about the things they could be doing, and you talk to Russians and they're like, but you know, you know, like I, even like the ones who understand everything, somehow you end up with a statement about how like they don't really feel bad. They don't really feel bad. Like it's not really my responsibility. You know, it's not. And that's just, like that goes somewhere deep into your question. I think that if people are are using their minds to explain how it's not how they're actually the victim, right? If they're using their minds to say how like they're not bearing responsibility because they're the victim. I mean, people are in fact victims. I mean, all kinds of ways. But if the way you're using your mind is to say, I don't bear responsibility because I have the victim, you can get really good at that, right? They're like in some incredibly smart people, not just Russians, but I mean, I have to admit lately in my life, the people who do this, who make me crazy have been often Russians lately, but like who are very smart and they, but they find a way to like tell the story in such a way that like magically at the end, 
they're the victim, and and you have to be and so it has to do with like habits of mind, and it goes back to like my like the thing, the the kind of love. The way I love spontaneity is that I like I want to love it from a distance, you know. I want to like I want to think about all the things that you have to do to be spontaneous, right? Like you make a good decision to do a good thing, but it's partly because the habits of mind where you think like, okay, I'm like if I do this, then I won't be doing that. But that you know, like the habit of like trying to take responsibility is really deeply connected to freedom. And so I'm not it's like this isn't exactly an answer to your question, but it's I think it bears on it in some important way. Like the people who feel bad when they're doing good things are the free people. And the people who feel okay about themselves, even when they're doing nothing, or they're doing bad things, like they're not free. And that's not a standard account of freedom. Like it goes back to the negative, because you could say like, the people who have no conscience, they're free, right? But for me, that's like negative freedom all over again. You know, like it's ripping, you rip out the conscience and then, and then, and then you're free. Okay, I'm dodging somebody's question. Um, uh, da, 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 da. Who, who haven't I answered? It's Allah's question weapons. about weapons. 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 <laughs> and Allah? This is Allah's question, I think, about. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. So it's been. Like it's been it's been fun to be a philosopher, because it goes. Oh, and this is about Roz. So I haven't. I have to confess, I haven't read Joseph Roz in like twenty five years, and I read it a little bit of Joseph Roz because my friend and colleague Daniel Markovitz's dissertation was partly about Joseph Roz, and so I, when I was reading his dissertation, I went and read some of his references to Roz. I am not like there. My philosophical education is sort of spotty and all over the place, you know. And like the the tradition that I'm working in here, as you figured out, is is a kind of sinuous East European one, and I'm mostly resisting the, the Anglo-Saxons or like riffing off of them, but you're, there are certainly parts of the Anglo-Saxon tradition that I could be paying more attention to. And I remember really admiring Rouse, so I'm gonna go back and like, I remember like thinking he was sort of the best of the people I was reading, so I'm, I'll, I'm gonna, I gotta, so in that case, I gotta go back because then like all the reviews are gonna be like, Snyder didn't cite Joseph Rouse, and like, obviously, so, I'm gonna. I'll, I'll, thank you. I'm gonna make sure to I'll make sure to have a look. But one of the nice things about being a, about like being a philosopher, like when you're not really a philosopher, is that you can um, is that you can say like I believe some things are right and wrong, right? So like I'm actually trying to give a correct account of freedom, and so I, I and and I I can say that I think that the reason people ha the people end up being unfree is because they're working on off bad ideas. So I mean, I believe that the question that the question that the, the discussion that, that Volodya and I are having is not just a principle discussion; it's also a politically causal discussion. That I really do believe that a lot of the reasons we're not free is that we are working with the wrong ideas, and you can have you can have then, and I would agree with it as a historian. You could have then a discussion about like what historical structures lead people to the wrong ideas, or you can even have a, you know, a genealogical discussion about where the ideas come from. But I think the wrong ideas have causal force. So with like, the book is, the book is about America mainly, and I think it has causal force that, that Americans think that freedom is negative. I think that has, I think the fact that we think that freedom is negative makes it basically impossible for us to be free. Because if you believe that freedom is negative, then you will ignore 
or defy or oppose a lot of the structures that you, that you actually need to become a free society. Now, was that your question, or is there something about it that I've missed? Oh, Ukrainians suddenly started wanting to be free over the course of ten years. Yeah. Yeah, okay, that, right, that, that's an empirical question, but I think there's like, I mean, so, okay, then I'll be, I'll try to be more of a historian then. Like, so it's an, I mean, I didn't answer the question about the rocks because I had my cool riff about rock and roll, which was kind of meant, you know, to show how values are both real, but also communicable in an unpredictable way. So, like, I think that, like, stories like this have a histor, like, the, the, the historical story that I would tell would have to do with successful resistance against against um, imperfect systems, right? So like the oligarchical pluralism that kind of predictably arose from your 1991 starting point was better in some ways than what the Russians ended up with because nobody, you know, like oligarchical pluralism is not great, but it's better than oligarchical you know, monism. And it enabled a certain kind of pluralism and swapping of clan power and so on, which bought, bought some generational time. And then there were moments, um, 2000 is one, 2004, 2005 is another, 2013, 2014 is another, where in some sense, people taking action was successful. And so the there was a discussion, I mean, this, I don't know why you're asking me this question when it's like a room full of Ukrainian philosophers who were actually taking part in the events I'm describing, um, including Volodya, but, the, but, but the, it's both the success and the nature of the commitment that counts because it matters, I mean, it matters that, um, that the, the votes were recounted in January 2005. It, it matters that Yanukovych fled the country. It matters that, you know, that, Ukrainians stayed and fought in February 2022. You know, it's it's the it's the decision, the commitment, but it's also the success. And so, if you look at the, like compare the trajectory to Russia, like fewer people try and there's less success. And so, historically speaking, there's a different there's a different pattern. But I would I mean, I'd also like to think that it's um that this thing called civil society, which we're now like taking part in, in this like luxurious situation we have where we get to talk to each other, you know that this civil society, like it's, it can be described in a sociological way, but it does have, it also has a kind of metaphysical side to it, right? So, I mean, Miknik, Adam Miknik and Havel, before Havel died, they had, this, they had, a, they had a, a long conversation about what was missing from politics. And they said something which was like totally incomprehensible to all Western readers. Um, they said, like they agreed, like what's missing is the metaphysics. And by metaphysics, they, they, meant, um, they meant what I'm calling normal, right? They meant an idea of the good. Right, and so I like to think that this thing that we call civil society is not just like sociologically describable. It actually enables the thing that I would like to describe in the book, which is that combining of values. You know, like in the questions, there are different. Like I could, you can, one can feel, you know, different value commitments in the questions and in the answers, and we're all kind of combining the values and making new stuff up. Right. So, so to end with Kolkovsky, who was my teacher, and who I think is unjustly neglected. I think you know one of the great, one of the great thinkers of the 20th century. But in addition to being a, a value pluralist in the, in the good logical sense, he also said a couple of, of really, a couple of, 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 of other things about value pluralism. One of them was that in addition to the values that are, that are out there, 
um, we sometimes create new ones, right? So like when I say loyalty and honesty, I'm not, let's, those aren't great challenges. But there are values, um, there are values which maybe we kind of made up, but then become real, right? Um, I mean, solidarity, for example, I think is having a bit of a renaissance. That's not new. It's an old Greek word. It means you know, density and being together. But there, you, can, you can invent values, and then those values can, can, can become real. And the other thing, and this kind of bears, it bears a little bit on the war. I don't want to make it sound you know, too dramatic or sentimental. But um, the other thing Kolkowski said, which is kind of interesting, is that he said, we, one, of the way, one of the situations in which we create new values is when we do something good that no one could reasonably have asked us to do. Thank you. Thank you for this incredible talk. <laughs> and um, I think it would not be exaggeration to say that Ukraine owes you so much. And uh, that thank you for all you're doing for Ukraine. I really join Ara's words here. So please thank Tim for this as well. We need to... Dumayo Strot, se tež očividno, što ta knižka ne mohla bi povstati bez pomiči Ukrajinciv i vogole bez Ukrajinciv. Więc ja vam takož ďakuju za rozmovu i vzahali tomu, što ste pravda, što isnuje v cej knižce tradicija z cjoho rejono i Evropi, ale ne tilki ce, ce tež knižka, jaka povstala tudi v Ukrajini. I ja hoću dopisati cju knjušku zaraz v Kijevi do kinca tižnja. Więc ja vam tako vsjakuju. So we conclude on this and with this conversation we kind of start a new new type of events at Pen Ukraine and Ukraine World, which I would call kind of a reflection club. And uh, with team one year ago, we've started a new podcast series, which is called Thinking in Dark Times. So I invite you to listen to it. And I thank you for team to coming and also encouraging us to make it not only podcast, but also live, live meetings. was a podcast explaining Ukraine and its serious thinking dark times by Ukraine World, a website in English about Ukraine. This series seeks to make Ukraine and the current Russian war against Ukraine a focal point of our common reflection about the world's present, past and future. We try to see the light through and despite the current darkness. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the largest Ukrainian media NGOs. You can support our work at patreon.com slash ukraineworld you can support our volunteer trips to the frontline areas at paypal ukraine.resistinggmail.com. You can find these links in the description of this episode. Stay with us and stand with Ukraine.